Hello everyone, my name is Maeve Koja and welcome to Firm and Final, the legendary stories from the legends in the stop loss, reinsurance, and self-funded industry. Today's discussion is with Rob Batchelor. Rob is an actuary at Milliman and one of my favorite people in the industry. When I joined Milliman in 2016, I was told immediately that I needed to get to know Rob and that he was one of the most knowledgeable people about stop loss and reinsurance. And those people were right. Now, Rob and I had two very different experiences as actuaries working in the stop loss space. Rob grew up in the insurance company environment, and I grew up in the consulting and distribution environment. But our skills complemented each other nicely. He's truly one of the smartest individuals in the business, and I'm glad to share his story with you. So get ready to meet my good friend and soon to be yours, Rob Batchelor. Mr. Batchelor, welcome to Firm and Final. Thanks for being on our show. Oh, hey, it's, it's the reason I got out of bed this morning, Mr. Koja. Yeah, that's great. So I really appreciate you joining us for this discussion today. And now, Rob, you and I crossed paths when I, for a short stint, worked at Milliman. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Milliman, I was told um, if I was going to do stop loss work, I needed to work with Rob Batchelor because he is the stop loss guy at Milliman. So if you could um, tell us how long you've been working. I know you work at Milliman and, and you work in various capacities, mm. uh, but how long have you been working in the stop loss and, and self-insurance and reinsurance space? Um, working at it in, you know, to, to a meaningful degree uh, since 2000. Um, prior to, so I, my first job, I was at a small health plan and we, we dabbled in stop loss a little bit. Turns out that we accidentally created something that had it was almost like a, a Frankenstein cousin of maybe the you know the spaggergate uh, okay structure. We had no idea that's what we we're doing, and I wouldn't I wouldn't really put it up against spag. But that was kind of my initial exposure. Um, and then 2000, I moved to Munich, um, you know, where we focused on reinsurance and stop loss, and um, and then moved to Milliman in 2008, and you know, continued. Uh, a lot of that focus. I don't work just in stop loss at Milliman, but um, that is sort of my my niche. So I, I'd like to get into more of your career background, but what the hell is Spagrigate? Can you tell us what that is? I view it as um, a, uh, a stepping stone between fully insured uh, and a more traditional stop loss, uh, where the, the aggregate ends up taking a lot more of the hit than you normally would. Um, you might also also consider it kind of a precursor to to level funding. And I, okay. I, I forgot. I guess there were. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm talking to Mabe here, but I guess we're talking folk, to folks who aren't familiar with any of those terms I just threw around either. Um, yeah, I mean, I think level funded is a term that's gaining a little bit more steam right now. I mean, obviously, everybody knows fully insured and traditional stop loss, spec and ag, but level funded is somewhere in the middle, and it's yeah. probably a product that's gaining steam for smaller size groups. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, when we, again, kind of stumbled into that idea, we were trying to create a product where the, I guess, the, the way we did it, the the spec premium, frankly, was overpriced, and we knew it. Um, and we did that to help support a lower attachment aggregate attachment point than you know might have otherwise been been put out there 
Yeah. And the, the idea, the funny thing is the idea was to, to ease these groups into self-funding. And then I found out like 10 years later, after, well, after I'd left the company, they were still on that same product. <laughs> so it's <laughs> a, a much longer path than, than uh, originally anticipated, I guess. Okay. So did you really get started um, like, you know, really deep into stop loss when you were at Munich? Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you go to Munich with the intention of working on that product or was that just something that organically happened? Um, I mean, I, I wasn't looking for a position where I would be working in stop loss, but uh, when I was hired, I knew that's what I would be working on. I mean, that, you know, Munich was a reinsurance company. Most of their business was uh, employer stop loss. Um, so, uh, so I guess it, it was organic in that it wasn't intentional, but yeah, it's yeah that that was the position. So now there's um you know there's obviously been a lot of changes in the stop loss and the reinsurance space. Carriers come, carriers go, reinsurers come and go, and Munich's one of those that. Yeah exited the space, but Munich has like this um, really cool history of the number of people who have worked in this space and become all-stars and gone in so many different directions. So I give give everybody a sense of some of the people you've worked with in the past that are, you know, doing successful things in like the stop loss and reinsurance space. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to get in trouble two different ways here because I'll forget somebody <laughs> And I'll get some some positions wrong, but just kind of off the the top of my head. Um, let's start with uh, my my uh, my boss Gary Nids, who moved on to head up reinsurance at uh, Swiss, and now is at Crum and Forster. Uh, Rich Phillips uh, at Axis, who I don't think he's the chief actuary. I think he's even more than the chief actuary, but at uh, Axis Reinsurance, um, uh, Nick Potenza, who's at Axis Reinsurance now. Phil Gardham, who headed up Companion and now is heading up uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, gosh, I'm forgetting. Uh, Umesh Kapad actually moved on out of the stop loss world and went to, to Tufts and uh, okay. the CFO there. Gosh, yeah, I'm going to. Uh, Patrick Collins. I'll just throw the names out and, and you know, people who are listening may know who they are. Patrick Collins, uh, Scott Buchanan, uh, Dave Daly, gosh, you might and Mike Coughlin. Um, uh, um, Doug Gates, uh, who's, uh, who was at, uh, RGA and now has moved to, uh, to Berkshire, um, Clint Copeland at RGA. Um, and I'm going to start repeating myself because I, I've forgotten who all I've said, but. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, these are people that are still, many of them are still working in the space and doing some really unbelievable things. Yeah. And it's really cool that they all, we're all kind of huddled together at one company for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, when we were there, it was clear that we had a lot of really bright people. And in fact, when, when I, cause I'm in charge of interviewing now at Melanin and one of the things like when they say, what do you like about Melanin? Um, I'll say, you know, when I came to Melanin uh, and I knew I was leaving where I was at, one of the things I thought I would miss was being able to find a place where I was just surrounded by brilliant people. And, you know, luckily, I think at Milliman is the same way. But, yeah, it was, at least to me, it was clear I was around smart people, people in the industry. But then when I started to realize where people were going and what they were doing and, um, you know, like I said, the fact that so many of them were in such key positions all around the, the industry, it kind of hit me. Just what a, a 
uh, unique group that was. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's a nice feeling. And, and, and I'm sure those people will, will enjoy that you shared that sentiment about them. And, and I'm sure those individuals are doing great things where they are. Um, what is it about like the stop loss and the reinsurance space that you enjoy about? Well, I like when I was in college and I kind of got introdu- introduced to statistical distributions. I just thought that was fascinating. And, and so the idea that, you know, things might follow a pattern that doesn't look like a pattern um, or that you can you know, try to fit something that it doesn't, it's, that's not exactly right, but it's a really good approximation of it. I like that. And then, you know, it, it, given that I started in health and was going to be in health, um, reinsurance just has a lot more uncertainty. And I, I find the idea of, of figuring out the impact of uncertainty and how much uncertainty you can live with and all that. I just, I find that enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's a fascinating industry and there's a lot of different sides to it. And so what kind of hit me when I came to Milliman and was introduced to you and started working with you and I, I had joined Milliman after spending 14 years at Mercer. And I was focused on the employer side of the equation, helping employers make decisions about the product. And, um, you know, that's a whole different side of the business, the distribution side of the business. When I got when I got to Milliman and met you, I started learning about the type of projects that you've worked on. And so it and it's completely different. I mean, you're not just doing actuarial work. And, you know, one of the first projects I remember working with you was on an M&A type of project. Yeah. But can you give us uh, the listeners a sense of the type of work that you've done for stop loss carriers, reinsurers and MGUs? Yeah. So the the foundation, I guess, is um, pricing tools. Um, you know, we create pricing tools that, that we license that are kind of out of the box type stuff. And then in terms of individual projects, uh, some you know, large carriers will have their own internal manuals that they've built and we'll review those for them. And that's kind of an interesting thing to figure out, okay, how, you know, like the easy thing to do would be to just compare their manual against ours, right? And assume ours is right. Uh, one of the things I've learned now being in this for 22 years, neither one of them is right. Yeah. And so, you know, like what it's a matter of how uh, wrong how wrong both of you are. Yeah, right. Yeah. I want to be the least wrong out of everybody is really the goal here. Um, so, you know, how much of it is it, do you really compare that? How much of it are you comparing against what's happened in their business and so on? So, you know, those sort of manual or pricing comparisons have done a, a bunch of M&A work, you know, uh, stop loss companies, like you said, they come and go. They also get sold and get bought. Um, and it's been everything from like a, a relatively small MGU up to very large you know, direct carriers um, that are selling business and worked on both the buyers and the seller side. Yeah. Um, reserving work, um, you know, and, and most of that's actually on the captive side. Okay. Um, where they, they need a, an actuary to sign off on on the reserves. Um, reviewing performance, you know, portfolio analysis. And that's actually, I, I find those fun um, yeah. because, uh, and I, you know, even at Munich, um, we, we built this little sort of system, whatever, to, to dig into our, our MGU clients business and try to figure out, okay, what, what's just happening and what's actually a pattern and what can be fixed and, you know, and where are opportunities. And so, you know, when we get to do that for clients, kind of take their business and break it down and try to identify, okay, where are the pockets that are really struggling and doing really well? And then, okay, what do you do about it? Right? Like, okay, 
business in Nebraska is doing poorly. Okay, yeah. so is that just uh, random? Is there something there? Um, so, uh, you know, enjoy that. What else? Um, uh, drawing a blank. Just just being around you. I mean, it. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm in such awe. My mind's not working quite quite right. But um, it's yeah, not. And then I guess the other one is these companies that are trying to get into stop loss or thinking about getting into stop loss. Sure. Helping them understand the business. Okay, what are the risks? You know, what are the potential uh, uh, levers to success? That kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's there's a lot more than just actuarial work that needs to be done in this industry and i think it's cool that you've done a lot you've touched so many different aspects of the work um you know one of my favorite projects within you know obviously i'm i'm biased on this because now i work there but you and i did a project uh five-ish years ago for bcs financial and we kind of split that project up you took like the pricing and the actuarial side of it and i took the distribution and the service side of it and we kind of put our heads together and that was a really fun activity for the two of us Yeah, you know, when I think I've told you this, maybe I haven't, but you know, when you left, I mean, I like you and all this, so that's fine. But, but yeah, I was uh, kind of upset because I I don't know the distribution side that well, yeah, um, if at all. Uh, I know it a little bit, but yeah, I, I mean, doing stuff like that where you know you knew your area and I and I could kind of learn a little, little bit of that from you, and I knew my areas, and you could kind of learn a little bit about that, that, and then you know, kind of put it together for a client that was. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Going, going back to Munich, I guess that's one of the things I think I learned there from the underwriters, many of whom were actuaries by training. Um, you know, a lot of us as actuaries, you got this formula. This is what the formula says. Yeah. And that's the end of it, right? Or sometimes, well, the, the, the data says that. So that's, that's the answer. Um, but uh, I think there, I, I was going to say I really learned. Some might question whether I really learned it, but I sort of learned that there's a whole lot more to it than that. You know, you've got yeah. to understand, okay, maybe that is the right rate according to the formula, but is there stuff the formula doesn't account for? Or, you know, is there a reason that, uh, you know, maybe you, you can't quite rely on that formula? Um, there's there's business considerations. Okay, yeah, I yes. know this rate's a little bit low, but I've got you know, X million in business or this distributor, broker, whatever. Yeah, um, and so this is more of an investment than a, a loss. And so yeah, it's, and I think that's it's fun to be an actuary by nature and by training, but to have those little pieces of understanding around it that, that sure. let you, sort of, um, uh, you know, get a bigger picture. Yeah. So in my shoes, I've I've been you know challenged by underwriting and by sales about a decision on a group. And I pulled this card from my old boss, but you you end up making a decision, you know, whether you do it or you don't do it. But he gave me the advice, set a meeting date uh, out into the future, one year into the future, and revisit whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision. And it works better if it's a group that you decided to write for whatever reason. Right. Um, but put a meeting out one year from today and revisit the, the decision and let's see if we got it right or wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that's always good because you have to be able to learn from the decisions you make. So I thought that was a good piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah, if you so, make mistakes, you don't need those meetings, but, but for the rest of you, yeah. That's absolutely right. 
So, I mean, you've been in this space for a while. You said since 2000. So obviously a lot has changed during that time. What's something that sticks out to you that is really different in the industry today than, say, like 15 or 20 years ago? I would say the just the use of data um, and, and a couple of different areas that I think that holds true. One, so when I started, uh, and back up a little bit, the, you know, when I found a pricing tool, there's a lot of different factors that have impacts. The factor that probably has the biggest impact outside of the deductible itself is the provider network. Yes. And when I started, it seemed as though the default was, well, it's a PPO, so that's worth 20%. Right. Uh, you know, one PPO is not another PPO. And and we actually, at Munich, um, you know, one of the things we were pushing with our clients was to try to get that data to value the PPOs. And it's not like we were the first, I don't think. But certainly, you know, we weren't, it wasn't the norm at the time. And now, I think virtually everybody understands the importance of getting some sort of data about the network. The more detailed, the better. You know, if you can get contract information to really understand it, that's great. Even if all you have is claims information, that's better. You know, and so, so that's one example. Um, one that I was really involved in. Another that I'm involved in, just sort of on the periphery, uh, to be honest, is um, the use of, um, you call it predictive modeling, artificial intelligence, you know, whatever. But you know, the idea of so PNC is, is well ahead of at least health reinsurance on this. Yeah, and they've been doing this kind of thing for quite a while. It's really just starting in health. Um, but the idea of using some sort of model like that even ten years ago, um, I mean, we built some very uh, rudimentary version of something like that at Munich. Okay. And it, you know, it, I mean got more pushback than anything um and now you see companies out there one of whom is a minimum company others are not so i won't name it because i don't want it to be a commercial but sure. um, uh you know they're having success and 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 stop loss carriers are coming to them saying hey i want to do this kind of thing um so that's been a big change i remember and i won't make any commercials for anybody either but i remember somebody approached us and said, hey, I got this idea about using data for for underwriting. And I said, man, this is outside of my wheelhouse. You got to go talk to Rob Batchelor. And um, Millman didn't end up taking on that work. But that's one of the companies that you're talking about that has been pretty successful <laughs> and recently got sold for a boatload of cash. So maybe that person was on to something. Yeah. And uh, you and I weren't smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> But the um, the topic of network data, it sounds like you got a little Mike McLeanism in you on that. Obviously, he was a big proponent of using network discounts. That's a place that MRM has played a significant uh, contribution in the industry for many years. So certainly agree with you on that. And I think the use of data is only going to get more advanced. And then on that topic, obviously right now, it's a time when uh, data transparency, pricing transparency is kind of coming to light. Um, what's your take on that and how it may impact the stop loss and reinsurance industry? Well, at the moment, so I, I don't work directly in the pricing transparency, but we've got folks at Millman who do. And I've actually had some talks with them um, to see how that data can be used. Right now, there's so much data there, and it sounds like it's kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's an immediate um, immediate impact. 
going forward, I'm not, honestly not sure. I, I mean, I think you could make a case for, you know, it will reduce payment rates because people will see that, you know, company A is getting this fantastic rate from hospital B and, you know, I'm going to get that too. Uh, on the other hand, you know, does, does, um, does stuff sort of revert back to the mean? Um, and so those companies are getting great discounts. Some of the hospitals say, I can't do this for you anymore because, you know, now everybody's expecting it. So I, yeah, I don't know that I've got a great answer for that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's going to be super helpful anytime soon. So I agree with you on that. I would probably say I, I don't think that reimbursement rates will go down. I would think that they would go up. I think it may actually have a negative impact. Um, and and the other thing that's missing, I feel like that data is just going to create a lot of chaos and a lot of like consulting opportunity. But reality is, is you're looking at the data point in time and yeah. we don't know when that contract was negotiated. We don't know how that particular claim gets reimbursed uh, without holistically knowing how every claim yeah. gets reimbursed. And then you just don't know when the next contract is up. And so it could be that. Um, yes, the reimbursement is low, but it's a four-year-old contract that was due to be renegotiated anyways. Yeah, yeah and you know, I mean, on balance, I, I like the idea of transparency, but I think there is some thinking that it's almost like, well, I can see the, the price of two different types of cereal, so I can see yeah. the price of two different you know, services at two different hospitals or something, or contracts from two different carriers. Yeah. Those contracts get so complicated with you know, carve outs and add ons and, you know, uh, you got to have grouping methodology to understand what, whether it's an ASC or DRG or whatever, you know, where would that go? And, and outlier provisions and yeah, you just, I mean, you got to really understand the contracts and, and you're right. I mean, it, I think it will create a number of consulting opportunities and or opportunities for um, smart people and, you know, large companies to kind of try to figure things out. But yeah, it's it's going to take a lot of work to to make that that data truly usable and and then as you said is it you know that particular piece of data might have been usable at some point now it's not so relevant anymore this one over yeah. here wasn't relevant now it is so it'll it'll be uh, um, it'll be useful but probably not as useful as the the strongest proponents would argue. Sure, sure. So now I need you to look inside your crystal ball. And I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think are like the biggest risks that are facing the stop loss and reinsurance industry? Well, uh, you know, high cost, I'll call it high cost drugs, although um, probably the bigger issue there is selling gene therapies, um, which uh, you know, aren't necessarily drugs, depending on your definition. You know, those are one-time hits that could cost, you know, $4 million. There's only a few of them that are currently approved. And, you know, I, I, I mean, you, you can throw out the number that are in the pipeline, which is huge. I don't know the exact number. Half of them are never going to come to market, but still sure. half of a ton is still a lot. <laughs> and, and that's, so, nice, that's a real nice actuarial uh, logic right there. Yeah, no, there's a reason people call me a genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, uh, and, and none of them are related to me, strangely. Uh, so that's one. I think uh, another, I mean, it depends on who you define as a stop loss industry. Uh, like growing up at Munich, you know, I, I view MGUs as an important part of the stop loss industry. Um, I think they are at risk from 
larger companies. Uh, you know, it used to be that MGUs kind of played in the smaller market and, um, you know, and, and your Blue Crosses, United, whoever, right? Symmetra, Sun Life played with larger groups. A lot of them are coming down now, you know, to smaller groups. So at least to that segment of the stop loss industry, I think there is a, a big risk and there's also opportunities for them. But I think there's a risk there. Um, I think there's a risk. Stop loss world is kind of like the wild west of insurance to me. Um, and, and, and it's actually, it's, it's fun at Milliman because Milliman is very, like we are all about quality and, you know, Peer review after peer review, and you know everything. Right? You guys have a lot of caveats in your uh, tons of caveats, right? And I mean, yeah. stop loss. But, you know, I guess not, it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there is a risk too, as um, you know, health insurance becomes more and more regulated. It's always been regulated, but you know, more and more interest in it, and so on. That the stop loss industry could go a little bit too far on some things and have some regulatory snapback, um, yeah. you know? Um, so I think that's a, that's a risk as well. And then that's the really... last one. There's probably also a risk from the financial industry. You know, there are products out there that are, are looking to, you know, they're not taking insurance risk or not exactly, but um, uh, let's just call it smoothing, you know, and Some other form of volatility protection. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And, you know, if, if stop loss was just, you know, you pay 20 bucks every year and, you know, and, and so it's truly almost like pooled, then um, I, I don't know that it'd be much, it wouldn't be a threat. And I'm not arguing for that kind of pricing because the company who does that is going to lose their shirt. Yeah. But the more it becomes, you know, I'm going to adjust the rate this year for you to pay for last year's claims. And now suddenly some of those financial non-insurance solutions maybe maybe provide much of the same protection, maybe more in some ways. So I think that's a risk too, is, is figuring out how do you, Interesting. You, know, you do have to price the risk. Like everybody isn't the same risk, but how do you do it in a way that, that provides enough coverage that it's still the best way out there to sure. cover yourself? Sure. Now, I don't want you to get into any of the stuff that you specifically do work-wise, but uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of M&As over your time. And it seems to be like this space is still experiencing a lot of acquisitions, especially in the MGU space. What's your take on that? Why is this such a robust M&A industry right now? Well, I'm going to divide that into two pieces, and this is at best informed speculation. I mean, but the the MGU space, I think you're seeing a lot of that because you've got companies that are, you know, they want to bring those MGUs in as a marketing arm or to capture that business or whatever. So it's it's a way for stop loss companies to grow and to add a different market potentially. Um, you know, that was, uh, this is, I think, common knowledge. That was kind of the companion model, right? And they went out and over the course of a few years, they bought several MGUs and, and you know, the MGUs are still separate and, you know, kind of ran themselves, but, but it was still part of all that big umbrella, right? Sure. Um, so I think you've got actually companies are sort of uh, trying to replicate that model to some degree. 
on the let's call it the direct carrier side at least from what i've seen i don't know that it's been that much more in the last couple of years i mean as i think and this is just based on the projects that i've seen it seems like it's been fairly consistent for me you know um look at one a year okay uh, i'm like that so again I, I don't don't claim to see the entire industry at any given time but uh yeah, i guess i haven't seen it be that um that different so if, yeah. I mean, if you know of deals that might be an opportunity to work on let me know you want me to get you a consulting <laughs> opportunity just, you're hearing them all on that well, well well played well played rob i'll i'll definitely refer them over to you um one one more thing you mentioned there There's was no the high cost. definitely at all no no not, not absolutely none um one other topic you mentioned there was the high cost drugs and and like you said these are one-time treatments you know, I've been I've been asked this, and I, and I focus in on this space pretty heavily over the past couple of years. But I get asked this a lot: that is the price of those treatments fair? How would you respond to that question? I'm going to start by weaseling. All right. So <laughs> the perspective. Globally, is the price fair? I think probably. If you think about the, the benefit, you know, I mean, like, you know, if you've got a, a 18 month old who is now going to live, that wouldn't have lived, you know, you don't want to put a value on a human, but gosh, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of life, that's, there's some value there. Right. So, yeah. And you know, I mean, on the other hand, you know, those companies, I mean, they do it to, to do good and make money. Right. So it's okay yes. to make money. They're going to push that envelope. Yeah. But yeah, I think at least broadly speaking, they're fair. Now, who should pay for it? Um, and that's where the fairness comes in, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, that baby and his family is getting a lot of that benefit. But, you know, should they be paying for it? And that's what insurance is for. But then if it's a 70, 70 years worth of benefit, you know, is it fair that the the company that happens to be, you know, covering them at the time pays for it. If the answer is no, well, then maybe the government should pay for it. But, you know, it's so that's really to me where the I think there's still something to figure out is yeah. who, who yeah, how do you how do you balance who's getting the benefit versus who pays and recognizing that the entities that benefit the most or the, the parties that benefit the most from it aren't going to be able to pay it. And, and, you know, with, that's the point of the insurance market is that they don't have to. Anyway, so hopefully I went away from totally being weaselly to just giving a very nuanced I, answer. I, I actually don't think it was weaselly at all. I, I, I would tell you my answer probably aligns with yours and that I, I think there's a societal benefit and, and a lifetime benefit to some of those treatments. And it's just, you know, for better or worse, healthcare in the United States is a one year deal. And so while these treatments bring societal and lifetime benefits, um, the insurance company or the reinsurer who gets stuck with that claim in, in this particular year is the one who drew the short straw 
but I don't think you can argue like the the societal and lifetime benefits. The one that's easy for me is Luxterna and curing blindness. I mean, you think about that patient, and they're going to be—they're not going to be able to be a contributing member of society, or at least they'll be limited from doing that. Um, they'll have to take advantage of uh, various social security disability benefits, and I mean, it's your eyes for crying out loud, right? right. And so to give that to somebody, and that's, in my mind, that's a lifetime of value. And so the cost is well worth it. But you're absolutely right. It's tough to pay for the person who's stuck with picking up the tab this particular year because healthcare is a one-year deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So back to uh, the crystal ball. And I know that you put out a Milliman observations of the employer stop loss market. Give us like one piece, give us one nugget that you learned in doing that study. Well, I guess I was, I've been mildly surprised because we've done it for multiple years now. Mildly surprised at how consistently the market seems to come pretty close to its target loss ratios. You know, we're, we're, I think legitimately, you know, I grew up hearing about the underwriting cycle and all this. I mean, it still exists, but seems to have smoothed out quite a bit. So I'd say that's one. Um, trying to think, if there's a another one. Well, so another one that was fairly recent um, goes back to the high cost drugs. You know, I was hearing we were getting questions from people. You know, our reinsurance company is just not going to cover this. You know, it's going to get carved out, whatever, and. And even hearing some companies talking about that as a solution, and one of the questions we asked is, you know, how are you going to handle this? You're going to just carve it out and not cover it. You're going to try to buy coverage from somebody else, or you're just going to figure out how to you know, deal with it. Almost nobody. I think there might have been one response that said, yeah, we we're going to carve it out. So I was surprised by that, but also somewhat hardened because that was there was talk about that being a death knell of the industry like well if you got this expensive stuff you're not going to cover it or what what's your purpose in life you know as a, yeah as what is the, really the need of uh, insurance and reinsurance yeah. at that point yeah so the fact that that the industry kind of caught onto that quick so now it's that's not a solution we got to find something i think people are still trying to find what that answer is but um that was a pleasant surprise i guess that's good that's good all right, so I'm going to get you out of here with a, a set of easy questions now. All right. Okay. 7, so, 12, 14, and June. <laughs> no, no, no math problems. Tell me, uh, well, I guess there's a number in here. So um, <laughs> tell me three words that best describe a career in stop loss, reinsurance, or self funding. Uh, I'm, I'm a numbers guy, not a word guy. So these might be boring words, but um, I think interesting. I want to say learning, but that that's not really the right tense. Um, but I think you you, know, you you learn a lot about things you wouldn't have, have understood before. And then, you know, I'll say social because, okay. and maybe that's more reinsurance and stop loss. But I, the one thing I didn't think as an actor, I'd really have to get too involved in, you know, like social aspects of business. Sure. Um, Stop loss and reinsurance. It's a it's a social industry. I mean, I I even temporarily took up golf because of being in reinsurance. Didn't do well. Say a lot of I was going to say a lot of <laughs> golf outings and a lot of uh, nights out with uh, expensive dinners. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. First time I ever saw a thousand dollar bill was when we went to dinner with a client. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as somebody who doesn't drink, I understood where a lot of that thousand dollars came from. As I there you go. But uh, yeah, so. I think that was three words, right? All right. So here's a challenging one. 
What would uh, you rather, which conference would you rather go to? Society of Actuaries Conference or ASIA Conference? Which one are you going to be at? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Just like you. Uh, probably SIA. Okay. Um, because, and, and that's a bit weird because SIA is a much more social conference, which is not really my forte. Just, I'd get to see more people I know, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, the, the relationships you build in the stop loss industry over time. But, you know, I've, I've got a lot more people I keep in touch with from like my Munich days than I do from high school or college. There you go. Um, so. All right. So speaking of conferences and all your SOA conferences, SIA conferences, what's uh, been your favorite city to go visit and why? Again, what city are you in? Center of country, baby, Chicago. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I don't even know if – oh, yeah, there was a conference here once. I'm going to say Boston. It's not really just because of the conference. When we lived back east, uh, we had a client up in Boston. I had a client up in Boston, and we would go up there as a family quite a bit. Kids were little, so they didn't have school to worry about. Um, and even when we decided we were moving – we said, okay, we can take one last vacation back east. Where do you want to go? I think our oldest was seven, eight, seven. And we said, and Disney World's off the off the table. Yeah. Because <laughs> we knew that was the first answer. And they said, well, the two boys said Boston. Our daughter was too young to care. Just the history. Uh, my wife and I like history. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, it's it almost, parts of it almost feel like a small town. Um, so... I'll, I'll say Boston. Okay. Um, so obviously you named a bunch of people that you worked with during the Munich days, and, and some of these folks are still working at, at some industry um, companies today, and there's there's still giants in the industry. Um, but if there was somebody that's new entering into this space and you said, man, you really need to know about X, Y, Z. Who are some of the people you would name as uh, that are giants in the industry from maybe years past that maybe are not as active today? Good question. Um, picture them. I'm drawing a blank. I mean, number one, I'd, so you want to talk about people who aren't as active. And he's actually somebody I forgot to mention at Munich because he's not active anymore. But uh, Steve Abood um, is one. David Olshow who I worked with for a long time. Uh, I don't know that he's as well known as some of the others, but his, he, um, it's his rating he, manual, right? Yeah. I mean, he was involved in one of the first rating manuals and that rating manual went with him everywhere. I mean, he worked at like six different companies and that yeah. manual always, uh, always followed him. Um, uh, I think who else might be? Well, McLean's retired now, right? Uh, he still consults with us. Okay. Okay. So if we can call him semi-retired, then I'll, I'll include him in that. Very good. That list. Um, yeah. So at least of those that I've, you know, had, I mean, there's others that I, I mean, I've heard of, but I haven't necessarily had much in the way of, you know, experience with whatever. So. Sure. And how about this as a last one? Just give us uh, one piece of advice for somebody who's getting started in this industry. What's uh, one piece of advice you would share with that person? To be willing to learn because everything you've, I don't know, it's just, I'll say it anyway. I don't care if it sounds bad. Uh, everything, <laughs> everything you've, you've learned through the exams, through school, whatever, it's not quite right. When you get, I mean, it, it's, that's not the right way to say it, but um, 
you know, through the exams and through, through school and stuff, you get to like, this is, this is how you get to the answer, right? That's how you get to an answer that's reasonably close. So you've, you've got to be uh, willing to, to learn and, um, you know, adapt um, and, and add to your toolbox rather than try to show why, why your hammer can pound that nail. Because it turns out that nail's a screw. That's a really good piece of advice. Thanks for sharing that. Anything I can do to help you, Matt. You know, and I don't want to uh, close up this discussion without sharing a story about you and me, Rob. So, you know, when people ask me, Is this me, that like, night when you got totally drunk and ended up sleeping on the sidewalk? No, that was Not a that different one? night. Okay. That was a different <laughs> night. But um, I, I credit I credit you for helping me jumpstart a career in, in stop loss. And so this is the story I tell people. And we were talking about a little bit about Mike McLean. We were talking a little bit about SIA and SOA conferences. And it was in 2017, the SOA health meeting was going to be in um, Hollywood, Florida. And Milliman was sponsoring the um, – at the conference, they were sponsoring the session. It was meant to be on stop-loss insurance. And you were asked to speak at that at that session. And you obviously live in Seattle, Washington. And for you to get to Hollywood, Florida, it's probably yeah. take you like eight hours to get there. Yeah. And I remember you called me up and you said, hey, this opportunity popped up. Would you mind uh, – do you want to do it instead of me? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And so when I went to the SOA conference that year, presented on stop loss, uh, happened to be that two things happened at that meeting, Rob. One, uh, Mike McLean was sitting in the front row. And two, I ran into, uh, I met Liz Mariner. I don't know if you know Liz, but she's a reinsurance intermediary. But mm -hmm. I met her during breakfast uh, that morning and started talking about stop loss. But I presented at that presentation at the SOA uh, Mike McLean came out to me afterwards and, you know, we had met maybe seven years prior to that. And uh, we just started talking about uh, the fact that he was looking to fill his role as he was leaving MRM and an opportunity emerged. And later on that same day, Liz Mariner said to Mike, hey, you know, I ran into somebody. I think you should talk to him about, you know, filling your shoes as the president of MRM. And so I tell people, Rob, if it wasn't for the fact that you didn't want to present at the SOA that year, I would have never gotten the job at MRM. Well, you know, so that I, I get two things from that. One, he presented with Nick, right? Uh, no, that oh, was okay. at the uh, that was at the Milliman Forum that I presented. Oh, okay, okay, all right. So I guess I get one thing from that. So I think I've told you this before, but um, you know, people at Milliman come and go, and when they leave from your office, you know, then you miss them, whatever. Well, generally, when I hear about people leaving from other offices, I'm like, oh, that's too bad. You're the only person that well, I've heard that I've actually said, oh crap. Um, <laughs> And now I learn I've got myself to blame. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I may not ever be the same, mate. It's a hundred percent your fault. It's a hundred percent your fault. Well, hey, Rob, I really appreciate you joining us for uh, this edition of Firm and Final. Thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Oh, happy to do it, mate. Serendipity is what comes to mind when I think about Rob Batchelor. 
I hope that story about Rob asking me to take his place at the Society of Actuaries meeting resonates with you. In fact, that event led to my meeting Mike McLean and Liz Mariner Ford in 2017, and the rest is history. Mike and Liz are both legends, and I've interviewed them for From and Final. You should go back and listen to those episodes. Serendipity is one of my favorite terms. It's the successful outcomes or events that you didn't even plan for. It just happens because of being in the right place at the right time. Now, some would call that luck, but most would tell you that you have to put yourself in positions to benefit from good luck and create serendipity. So what are you doing to put yourself in positions to benefit from good luck? Are you taking on that additional project? Are you shooting for that stretch goal? You are in control and you can create your own destiny. Put yourself in a position to win and make big things happen. Coming up next time on Firm and Final, partner with Mercer, Ken Magino. We took a look at our book of business and identified who we were writing stop loss with. So that became more or less the foundation of who we struck out our first conversations with. Yeah. And then as word of mouth hit the industry, certain other carriers and NGUs. Be sure to check out our next episode to hear the entire conversation. Thanks again for listening in on Firm and Final the legends of the stop-loss, reinsurance, and self-funded industry.